Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of Deep Dive, I'm joined by Angela and Jetty. She's a former attorney, journalist, and author based near Atlanta. Her book, Southbound, Essays on Identity, Inheritance, and Social Change, and the novel, Departed Earth, were published just last year. Her other writing has appeared in the Oxford American, Harper's Bazaar, USA Today, the Atlantic Journal-Constitution, and elsewhere. She's the co-founder of the Georgia chapter of They See Blue, an organization for South Asian Democrats, and in the fall of 2020, served on the Georgia Asian American and Pacific Islander Leadership Council for the Biden-Harris campaign. She's a graduate of Duke University, Washington University of Law, and the MFA program at Queens University in Charlotte. And she teaches creative writing in the MFA program at Reinhardt University. It's a pleasure for me to welcome you to the deep dive. How are you? I'm great, Phil. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad after our email correspondence, we were able to set this up and get this going. Absolutely. I'm, I've been really excited to have you on the show. I've followed your work for quite a while, and I have so many different places to start our conversation. But I'm going to start talking about this idea of multi-generational and multiracial that seems to come up and be framed in your work, whether it's long form or essay or even your Twitter account. (laughs) So I want to give you an opportunity to kind of talk about how that comes into such focus and how do we contain these types of reality over time and culture? Wow, that is such a big question. And I hope I start big. Do justice to answer it. So let me start out by saying, Phil, that you and I are roughly the same age, I think. I graduated from high school in 91. I'm 48. So I came of age basically in the 1970s, 1980s, early 1990s. So what I want to say about the multiracial prong about your question is that when I was growing up, there wasn't really language to talk about what it meant to be multiracial or multi-ethnic or multi-religious. And so I think part of the reason why I feel the need to think about it and talk about it so much now as I'm in my late 40s is because the kind of language and the context and the dialogue that we were having in the 1970s and 80s and even the 90s wasn't available to us in the way that it is now. Like, I remember folks used to throw around the term Heinz 57, right? That's that ketchup thing or the sauce that involves all these ingredients. And on the commercial, there was this, you know, it was that was the big appeal to this product, right? That was part of the marketing was, oh, you know, Heinz 57. So I remember people used to call me, oh, you're Heinz 57 to describe my multiracial, multi-ethnic identity. But I otherwise didn't really know how to talk about it. And when I met other people that were either biracial or multiracial growing up, they would oftentimes sort of side with one race. I don't mean this in a negative or derogatory way. I just mean they would, you know, one part of their identity would resonate with them more. And so that's kind of the identity that became at least on the outside, it became sort of part of their, that was their community. That's who they considered their people. And so it was kind of like the awkward age, but really the awkward era where it was very hard to know who to be and how to be that person during that time. And especially when no one really told you how to sort of honor and respect and be a part of your multiracial or multi-ethnic identities, right? So I had, my father was an immigrant from India. He came in 1971. So I had this whole family that was abroad. My entire childhood, 
I did not have any, even young adulthood, I did not have any relatives from India in the United States. That wasn't true for a lot of people. There were a lot of sort of large Indian families that we knew who had cousins and sisters and brothers and parents who'd come over when they were growing up. So they sort of had that security and that racial ethnic identity. But it was something that I really needed to be more intentional about because other than my father, the rest of my Indian family was abroad. So when we talk about multi-generational, how multi-generational intersects with multiracial, it becomes even more complicated if you do not have any sort of regular interaction with your grandparents or great-grandparents or great-aunts or great-uncles, right? Because they live abroad. Even today, I have one first cousin who immigrated here when I was in my 20s to the United States. He actually now happens to also live in Georgia with his family. But most of my Indian relatives live in Amsterdam, in Sydney, in the Sydney area, in Singapore, And then I have one aunt and one uncle who live in southern part of India. So there's this feeling of not just sort of an emotional disconnect, but very much a geographical disconnect, right? I'm very close to these family members, but I don't, I haven't had the sort of regular in-person contact that I would have wanted, right? And the same is true of my mother's side of the family. Unfortunately, I don't know my Puerto Rican family on her side, I became very close to my Austrian grandmother until she passed away a few years ago. But all of my Austrian relatives as well are in Europe. They're in Austria. So when you have multiple generations of your family that live abroad, that don't even live near you, and they're from different countries of origin, I think it adds another very complicated layer so that you become the type of person that is very aspirational in trying to figure out how to carry all of this history together, right? Trying to sort of grapple all of it at the same time. But it's very challenging. It's very challenging to do. It's very challenging to sort of pass down the heirlooms, right? Whether these are, the heirlooms are simply just wisdom, right? Knowledge about your ancestral history, or whether they are physical items when you have folks from so many different origins. It's a beautiful thing. It just makes it more complicated when you're trying to sort of maintain and hold all of these identities. And as you were kind of walking us through that journey, which is one that doesn't end, right? Like it just kind of takes on (laughs) different shapes and form. I was thinking about the diasporic nature of what you described, because though different, I have a similar, my family's West Indian. I have family in the UK, family back home in Barbados and Guyana, obviously family here. And I was wondering, have you thought about or tried to capture like what all of this movement has said about the forces of empire and colonialism and that sort of multi-generational effect on all of us, that we've now landed here under different conditions and backgrounds and timing, but yet the forces that moved us here and moved your family to all these different places are bigger than themselves. Like, how do we wrestle with those types of realities um, when we think about like borders and migration and what that means today? Absolutely. Wow, that is such a good question. So you're absolutely right. Many of us who live in the diaspora live in the diaspora as a result of colonialism, right? As a result of a colonizer coming into the home country and disrupting it in some way. For example, the British colonized India for roughly 200 years. It depleted completely the country of its resources and made it so that there were better opportunities abroad. Now, I don't want to just completely blame the British. Obviously, governments have some control, but the effects of of colonization and imperialism, right, are just, they're so deep and they last many, many generations. And, And if you look at a country like India, you can still see the effects of colonization, right? Even though technically the British haven't been present since 1947, you still feel it everywhere. And a lot of that effect is in poverty. Now, my family was very privileged and very, very lucky. 
However, when you still have so many people wanting to leave a country to succeed, one can't help but trace that to colonization. But to answer another part of your question, I think what this means for all of us, what this means for you, what this means for me, people that don't necessarily share any commonality when we talk about racial or ethnic or religious identity, is this should lead us to coalition building, right? Building a sort of social, cultural, political alliance and allegiance with each other where our shared values and our shared morals are the priority, right? So I don't have to know anything about your West Indian background. I just have to know that you're working for liberation, right? That you are working to dismantle oppressive systems, which rule all of our lives, right? No matter what country we have our origins in. In that respect, we don't need to be of the same community per se, right? Social, ethnic, religious community. But we need to be on the same side of morality. We need to be on the right side of everything. We need to be intentional. We need to be welcoming with open arms people of various backgrounds to join forces to work against empire. I mean, that's really the only solution. And I say this as an organizer in the AAPI community, as an organizer more specifically in the South Asian community, you know, these sort of ethnic, cultural, racial terms are very important tools for us to sort of bring in and call in members of our own community. But it's not going to work if we're walling ourselves off from other communities. What needs to matter most, what we need to give the utmost respect and regard to, are our values. What do we want the world to look like going forward? What are we ready to fight for, right? What does our collective vision of justice look like? What does it mean? What can we imagine, for example, if we no longer have prisons, right? If we no longer have the police, what does that world look like? That's the opportunity for us to all come together. And that really should be the priority, right? We need to work, certainly work within our communities to build power. But then we need to reach outside of our communities to work against together, collectively, empire and what that means so that we all become healthier. We all become better. We all have sort of a world where everyone can thrive in and everyone can have their needs met, right? The categories, the boxes that we check off, certainly they're important for purposes of seeing one another, right? And making visible people who are often not visible. But then when it comes to movement building, it needs to be as vast as possible. We need to bring everyone underneath that umbrella or we are not going to be able to achieve anything. And I love that we kind of jumped ahead to the reality (laughs) of you being an organizer, the lived experience of that, and the sort of hard-earned lessons of that. Because I want to spend a lot of time there. And I had a question written here Oftentimes, my questions are just words that I think will come into questions as I listen to the person. And you led me right to this collection of words, which is this idea of building coalition that you talked about. And how do we do that? I'm using practical terms, not in that way that assholes use practical terms, where I'm looking for like the play-by-play. But what I'm trying to get at is that we live in a world of like trauma. We sure do. And aggrievement. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, even when we're trying to build coalition, those two things like raise up, right? So as an organizer, I'm trying to get more to how do you incorporate those notions and dealing with those realities within the coalition building that you described and that I agree is so essential. You know, it's interesting because I think when many people ask the question that of themselves that you are asking, right, how do we do this? It can seem intimidating because of what you see blasted in the media or on Twitter or Facebook or whatever, which is organizing has this sort of appearance of being like this major event, right? Like a march where 10,000 people show up 
or a meeting where a whole bunch of members of an organization come together. And certainly those are powerful tools, right? I mean, I'm guilty of doing this myself, right? When I was, I did a lot of canvassing and phone banking for the past few elections and organizing events. And you take the photo on social media, right? And you put it up. And the reason you do that is because you're trying to get other people excited to volunteer and to help out with whatever cause, right? We all have to sort of, all organizers have to do PR work, right? At the end of the day, if we want to change the narrative, if we want to re-envision what justice is, we sort of have to do the very sort of tiring, cheesy, often uncomfortable post to Instagram, right? Where we're like, oh, look at me. I'm knocking 50 doors today, right? I do that too. I'm not super excited or proud of it, but I do that too. But to be quite honest with you, even though we make big issues of that stuff online, there is nothing that replaces the power of one-on-one interactions with folks in your community, right? You don't have to even leave your neighborhood to be an effective organizer. You don't have to leave your town. You can just work within a group of 10 or 15 or 20 people and be as effective as the organizer who talks about how they made 20 calls phone banking one night, right? Civic engagement begins with the absolute smallest unit of community, right? Meaning me sending a text to my next door neighbor, which I did do this, this is a true story, to remind them to vote in our municipal elections on November 2nd, right? That's not like a glamorous <laughs> organizing tactic, right? Just sending my neighbor a text. Hey, did you vote? Hey, here are the candidates I think that I, I'm supporting and I hope you support too, right? It sounds small, but that is actually huge. That is huge. When we link arms with people on our street, with people in our neighborhood, with people who attend the same schools as our kids, right? People who you run into at the grocery store where you might remind the checker, you know, have you had a chance to get to the polls yet? That is really the backbone of all organizing, is reaching out to people, even just in your inner circle, to ask them, to remind them that there are opportunities for them to get involved, right? Oh, hey, did you hear there's a city council meeting coming up? They're talking about whether or not we should spend the city's money on another park in the city, right? That's a great and important way to get involved is at the city level, is at your school board level, right? We've had, if the pandemic has shown us anything, It has shown us the importance and the power of very, very local organizing, micro-organizing, to be quite honest, right? Because it was members of the school board, members of the city council who were making decisions about, say, mask mandates, right? Whether or not your kids should wear a mask in school, whether or not people should wear a mask in public buildings. So this kind of micro-organizing is where it's at. And I think sometimes when you watch television and you watch Twitter or whatever it is where you get your information about resistance movements, I think some folks feel very intimidated by it because they think it needs to be much more complicated than that. And it doesn't. It really is, at the end of the day, a neighbor-to-neighbor movement. And that's where it's most effective because when you work with people in your own communities, what happens is you build authentic relationships with them so that the next time something comes around, right? There's a vote at the city council or there's a a Black Lives Matter march. They're going to start coming to seek you out. Did you say there was a march this weekend? I wanted to get the information for that. Did you say that there was a city council meeting? Maybe I should show up for that. Do you think I should show up? Do you want to go with me if I go to that meeting? That's what happens is we suddenly have these very personal relationships with people so that once they can rely on you as a source of information, you build trust with them and you get folks who might have been way too intimidated to go to a vigil, for example, but they're suddenly able to find a way into other different kinds of movement building. And they suddenly feel comfortable with that because they trust you and they believe the kinds of information you give them. So for me, I think micro-organizing is where it's at. I really do think the smallest unit is what's 
oftentimes the most effective. And I love that term that you use, the smallest unit of community. So I jotted that down to kind of reference as we continue to have this conversation because you're in Georgia. Georgia clearly has been at the center of Mm -hmm. so many national conversations about the direction of the country, you know, these sort of very weighty terms that are thrown around in the media. And one of the things that has struck me that also got incorporated into your answer is, one, I want to give you the space and the opportunity to talk about the specificity of being in a state like Georgia at this particular moment, unfolding, continuing unfolding moment in our country's history. But also, I would hope that you can reflect on, given the importance of micro-organizing, mm-hmm. the importance of, as you described, the smallest unit of community, why Democrats continue to be so bad at all the things you just described. <laughs> When they're so essential. I will happily answer that question. (laughs) I will happily answer that question. So here's the thing. Institutional Democrats, okay, I will use that term, meaning Democrats are actually who are in decision makers within the party, right? People that are in positions of power. Institutional Democrats, generally speaking, will only pick and choose a few places where they will invest their resources, right? So for example, in Georgia, Asian Americans are 4.5% of the population, right? And we worked so hard last year to fight for resources because we're only 4.5% of the population. So there was only so much that institutional Democrats were willing to invest in us, right? We did get quite a lot last year for the first time, but especially before then, it just wasn't happening, right? But they also only want to invest in districts in states which they feel can prove themselves. So in other words, the states that have the worst kinds of voter suppressing laws are oftentimes dismissed, right? I mean, they're often, they're like, well, Mississippi. I mean, Mississippi can absolutely flip. Absolutely. Mississippi is so much closer to flipping than a lot of the other states that Democrats are pouring their money into. If Mississippi, right, and there are wonderful local organizers in Mississippi. I I don't mean to suggest that folks there aren't doing the work. They absolutely are doing the work. The problem is, is they're not getting outside investment for the Democratic Party. And that's a shame because you have to start somewhere. Stacey Abrams began working to flip Georgia blue over a decade ago. You have to start the investment now to see the returns later. And generally speaking, the Democratic Party is not interested in making long-term investments unless they think that their short-term investments will, will have a good chance of paying off in the next year or two. They don't look beyond that. They don't take the long view. You know, already, right, you see these, there are two great candidates who are running against Marjorie Taylor Greene, right? Are they going to win? That's not the question to ask. The question to ask is not, are they going to beat Marjorie Taylor Greene in 2022? The question is, is does this district, if we invest in it now, have a chance of flipping in 10 years? Absolutely, it can flip. Of course it can flip. The thing is, is you have to start feeding that district now. You need to start pouring money into the district now to get it to flip. But we don't do that in the Democratic Party. We want folks to try to, quote, prove themselves, right, that they are worthy of dollars and resources long before they may be able to flip. But we don't do that kind of investment. What Republicans are doing now, they've been working on for decades. This plan now that we see what they're doing, right, dismantling every aspect of democracy, especially the judicial branch, right? They have been funneling their extremists into local judges all the way up to the Supreme Court for decades. This has been their plan, right? And they are realizing every single one of their goals, especially now, right? We've passed so many laws this past few months to restrict voting. This was the plan. And we have a Democratic president and a Democratic Congress, and this is still happening. 
So we're not investing. We're not playing the long game the way Republicans always have played the long game. We keep saying, you know what? This community isn't really proving themselves of being able to flip a seat. So once they get closer, we'll come back to them. That is just not the way to think about it. We have got to look at the organizers, the local organizers on the ground who have always been working and building and rela- building relationships with these communities, and we need to invest with them. We need to be like, oh, you're having an event. What do you need? How can we amplify this event? How can we help with funding for this event? And we don't do that. Instead, you know, we crack jokes about how this district is, is totally useless, right? This is never going to happen. And then suddenly everyone is surprised, right, when Georgia elects Biden, when we bring two Democratic senators to the Senate, for example, when why would you be so surprised when folks, organizers, especially black organizers, have been doing this work for decades? It's just that they were ignored by the Democratic Party when they did this work. So we've got to stop being the party of, well, we'll get back to you when things look a little bit better for your district. And we've got to think, you want to flip? We're here. We're going to provide the money. We're going to provide the staff. We're going to provide the additional organizers to whatever you have going on. We will support the work that you're doing there. And we don't. And this is why we have anti-voting legislation passed in so many states. This is why we have abortion bans going into effect in states like Texas and probably Georgia. Our, Our ban is at the appeals court level, too. So This is why we are where we are. This is why we are essentially a fascist nation. I mean, we can pretend that we have checks and balances, but we really don't. They've really been completely dismantled. Yeah, things are quickly cascading out of control on on many, many levels. And when I interact with your work and what what I see is that there's deep connections to what I would describe as like not just making the visible, not making the invisible visible, but pointing out like the stories that we tell and how they like have a reverberation through through time and, and culture. So when you were describing the current disarray of institutional democratic politics, it brings me back to one of your essays that I read this summer. And I was actually traveling in California at the time And I'm going to read the full title. We'll have it in the show notes, but I'm going to read the full title of the essay, which is The Unbearable Whiteness of Mainstream Canonical Southern Literature. Mm. And I probably butchered that. But nonetheless, that's the title of the essay. And what really struck me was how you talked about the way nostalgia grips the South and becomes a a proxy for so many other things, including white supremacy and sort of calcification of these policies and laws that we're seeing, not just in the South, but they tend to spread (laughs) from, let's call the South the training ground (laughs) for a lot of these ideas. And as you're going through this frustration as an organizer, dealing with institutions of all kinds and trying to get the resources. I wonder how much that what you describe as this unbearable whiteness impacts how people think about the South and what is possible there. If you think of the South as as this lost region because of whatever, then it makes it easier to dismiss it as a place to organize, to drive change, to build Mm. multi-racial, you know, coalition. So do you see a a space where those sorts of stories or lack thereof sort of calcify that thinking and then limit our politics on the other side? Oh, gosh, yes. Absolutely, Phil. I mean, this may also be true of the Midwest as well, but I'm obviously far more familiar with the South. There has been such a flattening of the narrative of what it means to be Southern, of what it means, of who qualifies even as being Southern, of what the reality is like for those of us who live in the South and invest in the South and call the South our homes. 
And this flattening, aside from being the butt of jokes and never taking the South seriously, has really harmful ramifications, right? I mean, politically, socially, I mean, when you can't ever be heard for your truths, right? When the sort of the false sort of nostalgia, right? Because this nostalgia is not even based on reality. It's not even based on actual history, right? It's based on white, wealthy, bourgeois, upper caste, upper class people that very oftentimes either owned slaves themselves or benefited from slavery economically, even if their families didn't own slaves, and are living on land that unceded territory of, of indigenous folks, right? So, I mean, this, that's, that's the story of the South that gets privileged. And it, of course, it reeks of, of white supremacy and empire, And it really does a tremendous disservice to the people who actually live here. I mean, the story is this of the South is really the story of civil rights. I mean, you know, it's the story of resistance. It's the story of diversity. I mean, we have incredible amounts of diversity in the South. And I mean that sort of at every level, racial, ethnic, gender identity, and sexual identity, class identity. And, and you really sort of flush all of that diversity down the sink, and then you never get taken really seriously. And it's just this constant striving to be seen for who we are and how much damage these nostalgic narratives have caused us. I mean, certainly folks have what it takes to empower themselves and to organize themselves But if you are constantly being, if your reality is constantly being silenced by a majority, it makes it very, very difficult to advocate and push for social change. And so what I wanted to do in that essay was talk about how absolutely warped our vision is of the Deep South and how that has real important and widespread ramifications that actually result in harming people of the South. I mean, it's really unbelievable when people in the South are constantly seen as white, quote, redneck people who don't believe in facts and don't believe in science. And when we are dismissed, what happens is, is we don't get the financial investment in our institutions here that are fighting for civil and human rights here and to elect progressive candidates. So there was real harm in that. I mean, I remember just being so down last year. I'd come in the house after canvassing for four hours, exhausted, and sit down and read another dig on social media about Georgia. I mean, when you are at the brink of collapse physically and emotionally because of the social change work you do, and you see a whole thread of people making fun of Georgia, how Georgia is a waste of time and comparing all Georgians to like Marjorie Taylor Greene. I don't mean to mention her so many times in this podcast, but are you inspired to then go out the next day and knock doors? No. I mean, I tried to let those comments not affect me, but some days I just wanted to crawl into bed and just give up because I just thought, wow, people who are on our side are even against us. They are even using Republican talking points, right? Even Democrats are using Republican talking points to dismiss us and to condescend to us. So then what's the point, right? I mean, it's hard. It takes a lot of mental and emotional stamina to do this kind of work day after day after day. And I mean, I think about people who run abortion clinics, right? They're showing up every day to work And then as soon as a judge here supports the dismantling of abortion rights even more, you know, everybody's like, well, of course, it's the South, right? I mean, it has a real taxing toll and enormous policy and legal consequences for those of us who are living here and really are fighting for a different kind of world. But we can't keep fighting forever. There is only so much gas in the tank. And if we don't have everybody rallying behind us, we're not going to have the stamina we need to go on. And interesting you bring up that point because I want to flip back to when you mentioned the 
power of abolition movements and thinking about how do we imagine a world without police, without prisons. And one of the things that attracts me so much to that movement, not beyond the fact that I don't like either of those things, meaning police and prisons, is the reality that it, it does make you from a, I don't know if you want to call it a philosophical lens or intellectual lens, to imagine different realities, mm-hmm. right? If you don't have this number to call for these people that are going to come to solve whatever dispute you think you're going to have, how do we start to now build something different? So there is that component to it. And I want to connect that idea of imagining to the way in which we are so focused on elections Mm -hmm. and our organizing is so focused on like, get out the vote. And if you vote, change is going to come because you voted. And the reality is that's not true, right? Like we have, like you said, a democratic Congress, a democratic president, and we can't get the things done that were promised to get those people out. Right. And so one of the things I made jokingly with some friends, facetiously, but not so facetiously, is like, if you're a Democrat, you ain't never going to get these people out again. Right. Like if you don't deliver in this moment, these two years (laughs) that you have likely, because I don't think 2022 is going to be a good result for Democrats, you are not going to get them out again. And it doesn't mean you're going to flip to be Republicans, but I know lots of Black folks, folks I went to school with, folks I pledged with that were like indifferent. And if this doesn't go another way, they're just going to just sit out, even if they don't vote for the GOP. So my little editorial aside, getting back to the imagination, like how do we start to imagine change that is not solely based on the results of elections? I think that is a wonderful question. So here is how I've always sort of seen elections, right? Imagine a giant dam trying to hold off water, right? A giant dam. The problem is, is the dam has a whole bunch of leaks. So you're trying to stick your fingers in the holes to keep the water from coming through the dam, right? That's what voting is. Voting is like, let me plug it up here. Let me plug it up there. Let me plug it up there. The problem is, is the whole dam needs to be replaced, right? So voting is sort of our attempt, our very temporary attempt that isn't going to last at all by us trying to sort of plug up holes. But the problem is, is it doesn't create real change, right? Now, of course, we have to keep as many Republicans out of office as possible, but it's not a solution for liber- voting is not the solution for liberation, right? Nse Ufa was uh, the head of the New Georgia Project, an extraordinary organization based originally in Georgia. It was actually originally founded by Stacey Abrams many years ago. We have to, she was on an interview recently and she was saying, you know, we have to have the right to vote, right? We have to have the right to vote. So that is true. That is 100% true. If we can't vote, then we are absolutely going to become a fascist nation. But it's not voting that's going to save us from being a fascist nation, right? Voting is not going to end police violence. It's just not. Now, obviously, do we want police chiefs who are progressive? Do we want prosecutors who are progressive, who are really re-envisioning and reimagining what it means to be safe? Absolutely. We need those folks elected or appointed to office. But it's not going to change. If you keep the same system, we're not going to have any long-term meaningful change. And I often feel like since 99% of the organizing I do is electoral organizing, right? It's based on elections and getting people out to vote. I often feel like I'm a hypocrite, right? Because I'm trying to get people to the polls to vote for Democratic candidates. But I know that that's the absolute bare minimum, right? That's like putting a Band-Aid on a gashing wound where the person is going to die anyways from blood loss, but I just might make it happen a little slower, right, than the way it's happening, right? So it's important to understand that elections and voting have very major, very real limitations. We still need to do it, but 
we are fooling ourselves if we think that this is the only work we need to do. I mean, the real change is about us replacing systems that we've had since the beginning of this nation. It's about really just completely changing how we see health and safety and how we view education and how we view housing, how we view food for people, getting people fed. This is really where the real change is going to happen. It's not going to happen if we just simply think that people going to the polls and people electing Democrats are going to change it. That's not going to change it. That's just going to possibly delay complete disaster, right? But it's not going to, we're not going to be able to avoid it. And we're at a turning point in this moment in 2021, right before, right? We're going to go into midterms pretty soon. And as you said, I think that the chances of Democrats losing a lot next year are huge. I mean, my own, (laughs) I live in the 6th Congressional District in Georgia that is about to be redrawn so that even though we flipped it and elected Lucy McBath in 2018, we're about to go back to being a Trump district again, right? I mean, redistricting doesn't start till November 3rd, but we have a Republican majority controlling our House. So it's going to be redrawn that way. So there's only so much voting in elections can do. Doesn't mean we dismiss it or play down how important they are. But if we don't have a bigger vision than voting or elections, we're going to be in the worst of situations all the time. We're just not going to get out of this. And as we talk about imagination and confronting these limitations of election, when you start talking about and healthcare, food, housing, education, all of those things are part of the story in the sense that they're part of the national story, how we frame the very issues that we're talking about, the idea and notion of wearing a mask or not wearing a mask or these ridiculous like critical race theory arguments yep. are framed as issues of freedom, right? And who's free? What are my rights vis-a-vis somebody else to move in a space or move in the world? And I don't think that those are, one, they're lies and they're false. Um, Two, I don't find them to be particularly compelling stories, but they're not compelling stories to me as a 48-year-old Black man, (laughs) right? Right. To a lot of people, these are very compelling stories because they are bought into the nostalgia, the nostalgia of America as presented as a blameless, perfect ideal of a country that flies in the face of its lived sure. reality. So as a writer, you're a, a, a visionary person, you're an organizer. How do we start to tell and incorporate a different story that competes and defeats the nostalgia story? When I feel on, yeah. on some level, people are either just kind of holding their ears, their hands in, against their ears, like kids doing kind of the la, 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 I don't want to hear this, or they're storming the Capitol with guts, right? Like those are pretty much the two reactions to those types of people. So how do we envision something real <laughs> and, and better? It probably starts with one-on-one conversations, but I have to tell you, I've not been super successful with that either. I am, Phil, I have so many privileges, right? I have brown skin privilege. I have cis-hetero privilege. I am disabled, but not as disabled as a lot of people in the U.S. I have financial privilege. I'm a very privileged person. So I am not one of the people experiencing the greatest amount of harm when it comes to people who are arguing about freedom, right? People who are basically equating freedom with white supremacy, right? So when we talk about these white folks, for example, who are continuing to advocate for undoing election results or not getting vaccinated and circulating rumors about what masks do to kids psychologically, right? When we talk about those folks who are supporting these conspiracy theories, and we're talking about folks who are far less privileged than I am. So I'm like, I'm actually not going to be harmed nearly as much as you are. (laughs) Have I 
been at the brunt of some pretty terrible abusive situations? Have I been at the brunt? Of course, I've experienced a fair amount of racism, sexism, misogyny, but I am actually in a place where I am not going to be as harmed as a large segment of the white population in this country. They are, right? And so it's very hard to connect with people, to convince them that actually they're the ones who are going to pay the price. I mean, I know of people, I know of white people who have died of COVID, right? Because they would not get the vaccine or they have gotten very, very sick from COVID and hospitalized from it. And we're in the hospital for a month. Ultimately, this is all going to really hurt them. I mean, white supremacy is very harmful to white people too. And it's really hard to find a way to find a conversation that penetrates the lies and the disinformation. And that really shows them that the nostalgia that they long for, their own families weren't really benefiting from, right? Their own families were living in poverty. We're living in toxic environmental areas of the country that caused their family members to get cancer. Their own family members had to flee areas of the U.S. because of climate change, because of flooding to their homes that our world still isn't curing, right? Their own families fall in that area of having too much to get Medicaid, but too little to get other health insurance, and they're not able to get their cost covers because their state won't expand Medicaid, right? So they're actually experiencing real injuries. It's just that they're attributing them to progressives. They're feeling threatened by this notion of freedom when that kind of freedom is really, it's killing them. It's killing them. And I've yet to find a way to effectively combat that. I suspect one would need a PhD in psychology or in cult deprogramming to really get it through to these folks, but they are being harmed. And the irony is that they're being harmed in ways that I am actually far more protected from. Me with the good health insurance, I can get all of my health issues addressed because I can afford my copay. Um, and I, you know, and my insurance is good so that I can see the doctors that I need to see and the specialists that I need to see. So it's this very bizarre narrative thread that the extremists have cast and have used to brainwash so many folks in the U.S. when other than the top like half half or 1% of this country isn't benefiting from it. And in fact, they're dying from it. And I've yet to figure out how to solve that huge problem. Yeah, it is an incredibly challenging thing, you know, White supremacy and capitalism are a hell of a drug, you know. Sure are. They are very, very difficult to wean oneself off of. And you and you find yourself, like as you mentioned earlier, when you were like, you know, people will repeat Republican talking points. I find a lot of folks repeating like just generally bad capitalist talking points, mm-hmm. even if they don't have any hope at all in benefiting from the the top of that. Before I get to the final two segments of the show, because I'm keeping an eye on the time. And so before we get to Off the Dome and the drop, I want to go back to your intro because everybody will give me shit if I don't at least mention Duke in this conversation. Because <laughs> it's That's only right. in kind of prepping for this and reading your bio that it kind of really locked on. I was like, oh shit, you went to Duke. And Duke is an interesting place to me because I didn't go there as an undergrad. I obviously went to Howard as undergrad, but I did go to Duke for business school. So we did not overlap at all, right? So you would have no, gone to- No, I don't to- think so. I went to Duke 97 through 99. Okay. So I left in 95. That's when okay. I graduated. Yeah. And I find it to be this really interesting place because it's not what most people think it is. Right. In that I found it to be a very warm, engaging, and and actually, broadly speaking, from a political perspective, fairly progressive. Yes. It's not what I would consider like a conservative Southern institution, though it kind of gets this douchebag kind of It really does, yeah. From like Christian Leitner. I blame it all on Christian Leitner and assorted other, like, even though he's not even that guy. That's the funny thing about Christian Leitner. And I was a big fan of Christian Leitner, so I don't want to be a hypocrite because I... I really did like him. And he was actually very nice. He was actually a very nice person. He was there when I was there. (laughs) And he's not really from a privileged background, Right. right? So again, it's like he has the look, 
but he's not really that guy. Like Grant Hill has a lot more of a privileged background right. than Christian Who was Leighton also does. very nice. He was also, he was also very nice. Grant, Grant's <laughs> a good guy. So putting all the basketball aside, I'm always curious when I talk to, to folks like ourselves who went through Duke, who were kind of going through that, like sure. the reputation of it and our experience of it. And so I couldn't get off without asking you about like, impressions of it, right? Like the Southern institution and we're talking very much about the South. You know, it's interesting because when I went to Duke, most of my, many, if not most of my friends were black and brown folks on financial aid, working work study jobs and did not sort of meet the what is kind of known as the stereotypical dookie, right? The sort of extremely wealthy white folks. A lot of people were really sort of struggling. The people that I surrounded myself with, I'm friends with them today. They were very sort of supportive, down-to-earth people, but not really sort of what the whole, like the do you remember, right, the Duke lacrosse scandal, which oh, ended yeah, up absolutely. not even being a scandal, right? That whole thing ended up being fabricated. And Caitlin Flanagan is one of those journalists who's been dumping on Duke for years. Like, it's almost like it's just become a harbinger for her for all that is bad is of white elitism. And she's done a really good job, among other journalists, but she's done a really good job in her pieces of the Atlantic of painting it is this just sort of bizarro world of white, rich country club, which there are those folks there too, right? I mean, it's- There's those folks everywhere. Those folks everywhere, but it was just not what I saw. I mean, I helped, I volunteered at the sexual assault center and, you know, and I did a lot of community service work, which is not to say that I was like a super woke person when I was there in the early nineties, but those are the sorts of people that I surrounded myself with at Duke. And so it has all the problems of every university, right? Especially every private university, right? Just this super capitalistic curriculum and demands and the athletes that get all the money and then the kids who are still struggling to get enough to eat, right? I mean, there's some real issues there. I just don't find them any different than any other private institution, And I just met some of the best people I know in college. And that's not to, I don't want to diminish or dismiss like any other institution. There's a huge problem with racism. There's a huge problem with sexual violence and misogyny. And from what I understand in alumni emails, there seem to be enough people in the administration that are really trying to do something about it and really trying to work on it. Are they going as fast as they should? Probably not. I've not found a single institution that is going as quickly no. as they should and dismantling oppression and historical racism. And I'm not seeing that anywhere, though. But certainly do I think it's, it's worse than other institutions with enormous amounts of money? No. I mean, I yeah. don't. I mean, I had a wonderful four years there. I met some really good human beings who are really out there changing the world. I mean, I met a lot of people that became social workers and grassroots activists and teachers and people who really sort of have a kind of vision for this world that a lot of us share. So it is what it is. And I tell people that Stephen Miller was an asshole before he got there. Right. I mean, yeah. (laughs) He did not become radicalized on Duke's campus. He's just been a dick. Right, right, right. And, and, you know, I'm sure you can be radicalized on Duke's campus, right? Well, we will certainly, you know, any college has its pocket of extremists where it is going to radicalize people. But yeah, I mean, uh, you know, there are just as many Dukies who, there are far more Dukies that hate Stephen Miller than align with him. So maybe we just need to get more vocal. Exactly. Keep passing that on, you know, one person to one person to one person. Sure, absolutely. Anti-Stephen Miller fan club. (laughs) So I want to get to Off the Dome, which are just a couple of quick fire questions, literally. First thing that comes to your mind is the right answer. So no pressure. So I have three of them, maybe four. I'm debating on one of them. So we'll see how this goes. The first one is, what should every organizer know that they don't know before they start organizing? So I would say that 
every organizer should come from a place of knowing that they're going to make mistakes. They might make a lot of mistakes and they might make some serious mistakes. Being an organizer is a process of growing as a human being. And it's not the kind of thing that you can rush. It has to happen with great intention and uh, seriousness and with help and support from others in your organizing community. And so you will make mistakes. They happen. I've made a million mistakes. I will make many more mistakes. But the important thing is to just keep growing as a human being, and that will help you grow as an organizer. Absolutely. Mistakes are allowed, and we need to lead with more compassion when it comes mm-hmm. to Absolutely. mistakes, something we need to all keep in mind. What's the thing that like, it could be a topic, it could be anything that you would love to speak about but no one's asked you to speak about it. Oh, that's so interesting. You know what? One of the things that I tweet about a lot that I would love to speak about, but no one has asked me to speak about is media criticism of taking a look at how we in the media, and I'm also part of the media, I'm also part of the problem, right? Continue to frame stories in ways that do immense amounts of harm, right? Whether it's a headline, right? But a headline is a lot of what people will oftentimes only read the headline, right? Or the tweet leading up to the article. I mean, there's been so much problematic framing of narratives of truth. And we've been so obsessed with these sort of false tools of objectivity in both sides that we're really not telling the truth at all. We're really telling fabrications. And I would love to talk about that more. And I'm actually contemplating a substack right now to talk about a media criticism substack, because I really think that more of us need to talk about it. I 100% agree with you. I'm going to take a quick editorial there because the things that really grate on me about what you highlighted, and I think that's so important, is when I hear people like Joe Manchin and Christian Cinema referred to as moderates, Mm -hmm. or there'll be classic liberals that are on TV that need to describe Republicans or even people like the two people I just mentioned, they have to start the conversation by saying, well, you know, let's be clear. You know, it's always let's be clear, a statement I fucking hate. But they'll be like, let's be clear. They're good Americans, right? Like this idea of like Mm -hmm. wrapping their harmful actions in this baseline of they're quote unquote good Americans. Like I hate shit like that. (laughs) It really irritates me. And it happens all the time across the board. Like people will use this so-called passive language to just make it seem like things just happened. Absolutely. Absolutely. And all the racist dog whistles. I mean, when I've been reading the coverage of local elections, right? A lot of these candidates are saying things, most of them white candidates, are saying things like, this area has been changing so much. There's been a lot of change and we need to fight this change. I'm like, why doesn't a reporter ever ask what that candidate means by the word change? It's just the diversity that they're having an issue with. That's all it is, right? They like to pretend they're talking about traffic, right? But it's not. They're talking about how completely offended they are by the number of black and brown people moving into their suburb. And there's no pushback, almost no pushback from journalists when those folks use those term change or changing. Yeah, absolutely. This It's so annoying. So please start that Substack. I will definitely- <laughs> I'll let you know, Phil. I will definitely join it and um, listen and rant along with you. So I'm going to ask just one more. If you could be anywhere in the world right now, where would that place be? I have not seen my family in Australia for many, many years. I have a lot of family on my father's side that is in and around the Sydney metro area. One of my favorite uncles lives there. One of the cousins I'm close, two of the cousins I'm closest to live there. So I would really love to make it out there. You know, with COVID, it's just been so complicated, but I'd love to go to Australia to see my family. It's been a while and I, and it's also just a safer country right now. I would love to go there to visit them. Absolutely. That's a great place to visit. I've not been, but I've always wanted to go. But anything that brings us closer to our family, particularly in these times when we, so many of us have not had the opportunity to spend the time that we would normally spend with our family is a good thing. So that is awesome. So now I want to get to the drop. The drop is the final segment of the show where we just share something. It could be anything at all. And it could be more than one thing. Some people I've interviewed have given more than one drop, but no pressure. 
we share something with our listeners. So I have a drop. Hope you have at least one drop. So do you want me to go first or do you want to go first? You go first. I want to make sure I do it right. So you go first. Oh, there's no right or wrong. (laughs) My drop is actually a book that I might've recommended it. I think on like probably when I first started the show or maybe on the show that I had prior to this one, but for some reason it's been, I don't know why it's been kind of top of mind. I, I read it a long time ago and maybe it's all the stories here in New York about all the just terrible conditions that have been going on on Rikers Island. And mm. that's kind of placed it more in my mind than normally. But anyway, it's called blood in the water and it's by Heather Ann Thompson. And it's a really fantastic book about the Attica uprising and the subsequent fallout from that. And oh, wow. I guess it's on my mind because everything old is new again. We've talked a lot about nostalgia and those kind of things. And the same movements that we're making or trying to make about how we change the way the criminal justice system works in this country, we're still having those conversations. It mm. can feel as if we haven't moved the dial in, in many respects, but nonetheless, it is important to keep putting these stories out there. And it's a great book. It's just written like, you would think like Attica Uprising, this can't possibly be a good read, but it is literally like, I killed this book like in two days and it's not short. It's a really good book. So Blood in the Water, highly recommended. And we hate to, to close Rikers immediately. I'm so that's my... I haven't read it yet. So I am definitely going to read that for oh, sure. Oh, you'd love it. You'd love it. Trust me. <laughs> and you're up. So, gosh, there's so many things that I feel like I want to plug, but I'm going to say there is a newish documentary. I think it's on Prime. It is about the life of Polly Murray, who was a non-binary, Black, feminist, activist, civil rights god, goddess. And I have sort of read about Polly Murray for many years. I think I knew about them, gosh, probably in my 20s and had sort of always felt that Polly Murray didn't get their due. And I was so excited for this documentary. I mean, they are really on the forefront and their work are on the forefront of like every justice movement of the 20th century. So I really, I'm really hoping this means that like this documentary is going to now have a lot more folks who start elevating and amplifying their important work. And Murray was just so far ahead of their time and really introduced us to a lot of the types of organizing tools that we have really sort of introduced the concepts of intersectionality before we widely utilized that term and is one of the founders of the sort of modern day feminist movement. So my, it was a great documentary. I wanted like four more hours, but it was a great documentary and I highly recommend it. And uh, Polly Murray also wrote beautiful poetry when they were still alive and I enjoy it. So highly recommend everyone going out and watching this doc and learning whatever they can about Polly Murray. That is a great drop. You did that perfectly. And it's funny because in the episode of the deep dive that I released with Professor Timothy Snyder from from Yale, which came out a week to when we we're recording this, that was my drop, actually. Was, was it the, really? Was the documentary. You think a light film? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. She was... There's someone that I was not overly familiar with when I heard the name, but I didn't really know the extent sure. of the impact and their work. And I actually bought the memoir, mm. which I haven't read yet, but in anticipation of watching the documentary. So I was like, okay, I'm going to watch the documentary, then I'm read the book. So now I've watched the documentary, which is why I recommended it. And now I'm going to read the book as well. But um. It actually was talking about the documentary last week at a conference I was at. So it's been, it's really stuck with me, is my point. And so I'm really super happy that it has resonated with you as well. Absolutely. That's an awesome drop. So we got to keep pushing the Pauly Murray documentary on people. We should, you know? yes. Pauly <laughs> Murray fan club. I'm sure there's already fan clubs out there, but I've got to find one to join. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anjali, this has been awesome. 
Thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thank you for having me. This has been so fun, Phil. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I mean, your work is amazing. I want everybody to go out there and get your books, but also like as you, you know, continue to publish your essays, all of that, like just check it all out. It will always make you think and your Twitter feed is one of my favorites. So thank you so much for being on the deep dive with me. Thank you. You take care. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.